um, every time I watch your playing, I'm like, God damn it. Here's another, here's another super young guy who's just fucking killing it. <laughs> Thanks. Oh man. This probably was like maybe even a year ago. Um, you posted something about when you were 13 playing at first Ave. Yeah. So how? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess, well, it's kind of a loaded question, loaded answer. Um, to start everything off, it started with my dad. Um, you know, my love of music and why I do what I do today comes from my dad. My dad's a, you know, he's a touring professional drummer, kind of sideman, hired gun. And in a normal non-COVID year, he's gigging, touring half the year. Um, you know, playing with guys all the way from Peter Frampton, like Brian Setzer. So he's, you know, he, he gets around, he, he's doing the touring drummer thing. And I think... I don't remember which first half. I think that was a first half show where it was like a David Bowie tribute, like a local thing. And they're like, hey, man, just come just come play for this song. So I, I busted out a pair of red skinny jeans and it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's like one of those, that's one of those dream scenarios of like getting to play on that stage. It really was, especially like being able to do it that young too. I think there's only been like a handful of other kids and I'm, you know, I'm still honored and humbled every time I see that picture, even more importantly than that, being on that stage, I've never felt something like that. It was like a rush of energy and adrenaline that I've, you know, I've played for more people than that, but something about that room, it's truly legendary and you can't explain it until you play there. It's like a crazy amount of adrenaline that you've never had before. And everybody says the same thing about it. There's some great vibes on that stage, man. It's killer. Yeah, well, it's historic. Like, I feel like there's something spiritual about being in that place, honestly. Yeah, like the vibes. And when I was there, I think it was just after Prince died. So they had the original Purple Rain Honda parked out back in like the, the backstage kind of garage area. And it was just like, wow, that was the Honda bike from Purple Rain. It was surreal. You know, nights like that, you definitely can't take for granted. And the fact that you like were able to appreciate that even at the time you know, and being able to look back on that fondly and like you took it in. Definitely. Okay. So I have, I have many, many questions about your studio because you've posted many, many things from inside that studio. Ask away, man. I'm a huge nerd. Dude, what an amazing spot. Is this its own building that you're in or are you in yeah. like the top? Okay. Cause I've wondered like, is this an attic scenario? Cause Ian Allison has kind of that thing going on. Dude, it's an attic of a garage. So I'm in an out garage right now in my backyard. So it started a few years ago, you know, me and my family live in St. Paul and one of my mom's best friends literally lived a block north, like the, the next, you know, the city kind of rectangle blocks. She lived on the corner of the north block. She was selling her house. Um, all of her kids kind of ended up out of the house. You know, all of her kids were grown. She had five kids in the house at one point and now they're all off at college. And she kind of had a realization like, I don't need this space anymore. And, you know, we were looking to upsize. We had a teeny house ever since, well, kind of until I was born, until I was like 15. You know, we were kind of all on top of each other. Uh, limited space, limited music space, gear space, and everything like that. And for my dad and I as musicians, you know, having like a separate area um, to kind of consolidate everything and be able to work is a huge deal. So moving to this house, well, when this house became available, we kind of noticed that there was a little bit of a space above the garage. If we soundproofed, it would just be perfect. But it came with some obstacles. So, you know, eventually we had to buy the house. It was just a great deal. The market was great. Got a lot for our old house. And, you know, after talking to contractors, architects, the whole deal for about a year and a half, we finally decided to tear the whole building down 
and build it from scratch. Two layer. So right now I'm on top of a two car garage and underneath it's like a one car, basically functioning garage. And the other half is gear storage, like cases, you know, lawnmowers and shit, whatever is <laughs> down there. So that's basically what it is. And it came up, the electrical came up first week of quarantine in March. So I was not expecting to have a place to work. I remember the week before quarantine hit, there was like a, I know you had this too. It was kind of like a weird stream of like gigs suddenly getting canceled, gig session, basically any work for any musician. And my dad and I kind of went into a panic, like, oh my God, what do we do? And then, you know, the electrician was able to finish everything the next week. And we had the gear already ordered. I built the desk, kind of built all the rack gear, assembled that. And then we're, it's basically just been going, going, going from there. Well, that's kind of perfect how that works out. Dude, it was definitely, it was perfect to say the least. Prior to that, though, what took up the most? Because I only started following you, I would say it was either late 2019 or early 2020 when I uh, found your Instagram. And the majority of that time has been in quarantine. So the majority of what you see me doing and the majority of what I see you doing is this. This is it. Sitting at a, at a screen and, and making stuff. Is that even remotely how it looked pre-COVID? Man, not really at all. Um, I did a fair amount of kind of engineering um, other people, but it was nowhere near the intricate levels of engineering production all in one package that I kind of offer here where I can play all the instruments, engineer it, produce it, mix it, everything but master, send it off to my favorite mastering engineer or whoever the client wants. And then it's a whole single or a whole album that I can do with the client. So that's kind of, that's kind of the whole point here. And before quarantine, I really didn't have a space to do that. Um, you know, I knew a decent amount um, about production and recording, but I never had a room where I could actually put my knowledge to kind of pen and paper and be able to use it. You know, I would do a fair amount of mobile sessions. I just had like a little Scarlet with the laptop and I would do a ton of guitar and bass tracks for people, but I never had my own professional thing set up where I wanted. Like now, you know, I have a full drum kit mic'd pre's on the, or gain on the pre's ready to go 24 seven. And before, you know, I didn't necessarily have a setup room, so I would have to you know, tear down drums at the end of every day, get gains for drums every day. And it was just a huge pain. So having everything consolidated, that's kind of where I'm living right now in the studio world. But I mean, even before the studio, it was not, well, I guess all of my work was just sideman guitar and bass stuff, really. Um, any kind of pickup pop gig I could do, any kind of pickup rock gig. And then once the studio thing started, I really found my niche. And I was like, man, this is what I want to do. Have you guys named it, you and your dad? Chubby Mammal Studios. <laughs> yeah, it was when my little sister was a kid. It was something just random. She was like, Dad, are dolphins chubby mammals? And so we just we just kind of kept that. There's like an audio recording, and that's the name of the studio now. So, yeah, man. I think another one of the first things I ever saw of you was you were playing a P-Bass, and I, I think you were sitting in, uh, like, with the combo. Yeah, down at Bunkers. I mean, does, does shit like that just occupy your time because of like, obviously you're insanely talented, but I mean, oh, thank you, man. Thank you. Those things, I feel like, like you're present as far as like who you are and bringing what you have. But like, I mean, do people just know your dad and then they're like, he has a son that is like doing the same shit. <laughs> like, I mean, come out. Yeah, you know? that's kind of, that's how a lot of it started to happen. I purposely didn't want things to go like that. So I did try to, you know, prove myself and kind of hold my own a lot of the time. But that's how a lot of things did happen. Um, you know, basically my dad would just pull the string, hey, you know, take a chance on my son. If it's if he doesn't learn his shit, if he's not doing his homework, just fire him. But <laughs> that kind of thing. So. So you would play in like 
bands that your dad was in? Yeah, um, more so sub. Um, but yes, yeah, I would play with my dad a lot, and that's kind of how I started playing. I'd play with my dad. My uncle's a singer-songwriter in town, um, playing with him. But I would say my early years of playing, you know, playing with my dad and uncle were like the main sources of gigs for sure. So what what is that? Like, what did that sort of um, play out as? Like, was your dad sort of, all right, I'm going to show you the ropes? Or was it kind of like he he was like, this is an opportunity for growth and just like sort of let you figure it out? Man, it was all him letting me figure it out. Um, you know, once in a while, he'd have pointers. Like if I was doing something stupid at a gig, you know, like if I was a little kid and I was noodling at soundcheck, he'd be like, fucking knock that off or shit like that. Um, but he would really let me find my own as you, every musician knows there's a certain amount of struggle that you have to go through that you can't be told. And he really, he knew that from the get go. So he really was good about letting me fail on my own and letting me see the consequences of that, which I'm extremely grateful for. Cause I, what I, I think what he really worried about is kind of, he was raising me was that everything would just be handed to me and he would just tell me everything. So I wouldn't necessarily experience any consequences. And I think um, you know, just getting embarrassing gig moments out of the way early on or not playing as well as I should or handling myself in certain social situations. Um, you know, he let me do all that minor pointers along the way, but he really let me, um, grow by myself, which I'm deeply thankful for. I feel like that's always the, that's always the more present threat is just like too much guidance. Totally. I was listening to a, a lecture from this professor of psychology and he was talking about parenting. And what I found super interesting was like he he was adamantly like I've seen over guidance in parenting do way more harm than a lack of guidance. Oh, 110 percent. Because like as you grow, especially in developmental years, but like as a person grows, they soak up everything and, and everything that is learned is learned so fully. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very true, especially with my dad. I think he found the sweet spot. He knew when I needed to figure things out for myself or he would see if I was figuring something out and it wasn't working, then he would swoop in. But he, he was great about letting me figure shit out on my own. And I'm deeply thankful for that. Yeah, like he, he would come to your aid when he saw like, okay, he's putting in the effort, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like he's he's busting his ass trying to figure this out. And so let's get it done. Exactly. What would you say is like your, because obviously I feel like your sound has got to be shaped by so many different voices. Having the connections that you have through your dad and just through being a, like a working musician in a city like this, do you feel like your voice is a specific set of genres? Or do you, do you kind of like fly everywhere as far as that goes? Man, it's funny. Um, I have a few things to say on this. First of all, I read an article somewhere that the music you listen to when you're 13 and 14 really um, kind of impacts the way you think and your music taste and how you play after that. And it makes sense because when I was 13 and 14, you know, I was listening to the 1975, Laney, D'Angelo, any kind of Minneapolis thing. And I think... It's kind of funny that, you know, I can do all like the 80s boy band kind of tones and then have the Minneapolis kind of growing up in the city side of things, too. But I was also listening to like country slinging dudes like Greg Cock or like any kind of rockabilly like Brian Setzer, like guys like that. So it was it was definitely, um, you know, the guys who I was listening to or the bands that I was listening to when I was 13 or 14 really had a, a shape on that. So. It is, I can kind of go all over the map, 
but I feel really at home in the studio side, getting the kind of like the modern pop anywhere between, you know, like I'm seeing a fusion now with like Charlie Puth and stuff like that, where it is kind of funk mixed with like the eighties thing in 1975. And that's kind of my niche for sure. Yeah. And I, I think it's so cool too, that I, th I think I've, the first time that I remember people saying like, oh man, 80s music is coming back was when I was uh, probably 16, you know, so like 2012, about that time. And I was like, then I started to become aware of it. Um, and I was like, yeah, it kind of, it, it sort of is like people were starting to buy records again and like bands were printing brand new records. But it's interesting to see that like some of the ways that it's played out, I feel like have been so it's so impacted by the 80s, but it's not the 80s sound. Exactly. Charlie Puth and the 1975 are perfect examples of that because like Charlie Puth has this encyclopedia of amazing music from like soundtracks and, you know, just like random little things that he'll hear anywhere, you know? Yeah, that's very true. I honestly think the only thing 80s about, you know, kind of the modern music that kind of claims itself as 80s is basically comes down to three things really you know the patches down to like guitar tones or keyboard patches and then well two things and then drum grooves i mean if, like the 80s you know production's way better now than it ever was back in the 80s you know mixes yeah. are better everything's better um I, I really agree with you on that i think if you listen to a, like a lot of 80s pop hits they were definitely almost kind of more obnoxious yeah yeah and that's i think that's that's a good way of like wrapping that in a nice little bow is like, yeah, the eighties stuff, even, even like the legendary stuff that really, really holds up. It's got a level of like, I don't want to say cheesiness because like, that's, that's kind of cliched, but it has this sort of like camped up quality to it. Totally. Where if people were to, if people were to do that same thing now, I feel like it would be hard to take it seriously. Like in the eighties, that was, that was a serious thing. Yeah. But now it's like the, even the, um, what was the one that uh, Charlie Puth and Lennon Stella did for? Um, I know uh, exactly that that summer one or whatever it's called. Yes, summer feelings. That one is like I feel like that's a perfect example of its influences are so strong and it makes you feel like cool. I'm on the beach and it's the '80s or the '90s but it doesn't sound like it you know it's just putting it's just putting your mind and your spirit in that cool atmosphere yes so it I, captures I think, the atmosphere vibe in a but it, it's better that makes yes. sense it definitely and it's 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 fun to hear you say that too because like i feel like that's a at, le at least in my circles I, I work with a lot of people who are you know um who are very you know rightfully so defensive of a lot of that classic those classic recordings. Um, and I think that, you know, when people talk, when t people talk about like nostalgia, you know, sort of blinding people, um, I think for the people that are older than us by like maybe 10, 20 years, uh, for them, it's, it's like those old recordings where, Oh yeah. 110%. Like I, I never listened to that. Like I, I listened to some, um, cool 108 growing up. And so like, I heard a lot of old music, but when my ear was paying attention like once I started playing and learning music and I, I started to pay attention to some of that stuff, my my frame of reference was like modern music. And a lot of it, too, was country because um, like Brian, Brian Setzer and Brad Paisley were like two of my really big 
like f- some of my first influences. Totally, man. And uh, like, man, they're, they're, that stuff is so polished. And like when I go back and hear old stuff, I'm like, man, I wish I could hear this if it had been recorded today. You know? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's that's so funny that you say that because I think about that all the time too. Like I'll be on a session with my dad all the time and I'll be production, you know, producing something and there's, I do like a stereo chorus and he's like, oh, that sounds just like 1987. And it's like, sorry, that was kind of like a mean impression, but it's like, no, <laughs> this is this is completely different. This is, and I think kind of, that's a good way of putting it, blinded by nostalgia where it's mm-hmm. it's definitely different, but it's it seems the same. Because yeah. of the oh, same elements it, that they grew up with. It's almost it's almost like making that music as good as you remember it. Maybe not as maybe not the same as it was, but making it as good as you remember it. Totally. And I, I think that, that that goes for like one of the things that I think makes a good remake or a remaster of a video game from like 20 years ago. It's not so much about recreating the exact thing and just putting it on new hardware. It's like people are blinded by nostalgia and if they haven't visited something, whether it's music or film for a really long time, uh, it happens a lot with video games. And I think with music too, because the technology of the medium changed what was coming out of it so much more um, that like, yeah, you kind of do have that opportunity, especially with that whole voice notes record. You have the opportunity to make the eighties sound as good as, as we all think it did. Definitely. As far as like the sonic, like the production, you know, like scientifically. Man, that's exactly what happened to me. You know, like when I started listening to the second 1975 record, um, you know, stuff like with She's American and uh, somebody else and all that stuff. It's like my dad was like, oh. You, you like that you should go check out records back from 84 like 87 because i assumed it was gonna be the same and then you check back and it's like this isn't the same like the the new cats set a new standard for sure yes um it kind of sets a new standard and almost like a an illusion that old tunes were better than they were because people are doing it better now <laughs> it's a, you know it's not like a broken record but it really um the new 80s recreations really are setting a new standard and they're almost better so yeah i think that that's i think that that's really true like i've heard a lot of people who you know again people who are rightly very inspired and impacted by that old stuff like for me it's not a nostalgic thing but i still have strong responses to that old music even if the technology uh wasn't there to make it as like polished as we did but then they'll sometimes say like oh they'll hear they'll hear a track that's made in 2020 or they'll hear a track that was made in 2017. And it's like, oh, they're totally, they're totally going for like this exact sound from this song because, you know, and for them, they're like, oh, well, this just sounds exactly like this other thing. Yeah. It's it like, was done first. It was done first. <laughs> right. It, it was done first. Yeah. And this is like sort of pulling from that. And it's like, well, yeah, but also like, yeah, put you them can side, make that put them side by about, side. Let's look oh at the God. EQ readout. Exactly. I guarantee yeah. that, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and, and just like plug it into uh like just run it through your studio setup and it's like a lot of that old stuff like doesn't even touch the subs you know no it can't hold up yeah definitely can't it'd be great if it did oh my god yeah <laughs> in a perfect world we could just go back and redo it like we could just polish that off somehow i think about that a lot too with like those when you talk like really old recordings where people would just 
like it's you hit record and then everybody goes. Yes. And then that and then if it was a good take, then that's the one you use. Man, I've been thinking about that a lot this week, actually, Um, because I would not last, dude. No, especially the tape thing where it's like, (laughs) well, you definitely don't have beat detective. Can't quantize. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. Like my dad gives me shit about that all the time, but it's like, he's like, you know, back in my day, you actually had to be good at your instrument. You couldn't copy and paste. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. He's like, back in my day, you know, if I wanted to do a fill, I actually had to do it right. And I had to keep my snare tone. I couldn't sample replace it. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. But I, you you're know, not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. But honestly, part of me. I feel really uninspired sometimes, especially kind of like on modern pop tracks because um, things can be a little bit too seamless. Um, you know, if something already sounds full, it I almost kind of would rather go back to the old way of doing things where it's just all in one take. There's more subtle emotion that you can't necessarily put your finger on. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot this week where I almost kind of want to do some tunes here. Um, track down an old Ampex or Studer tape machine and just go at it. Yeah, just go, just go for it. Um, it's funny, like the whole, you know, back in my day, you had to like actually do it. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that there's definitely like, like if you're gonna make a living out of being a guitarist, you know, if you're gonna make a living as like a a, a sideman, I guess, in in any in any instrument, but like if you're gonna make a living out of doing that. It's like, okay, you need to be reliable just for your own sake. Oh, yeah. Um, you need to know that you can do it. And and I think that's something that I've had to understand too. I'm, I'm curious what your um, experience with this is. Because for me, it's like sometimes I'll want to feel bad about something because it's like I had to use editing trickery to get something to be exactly what I wanted. Yeah. It's like, why couldn't I just have played that? Yeah. You know, and the thing is, is like, I feel like, after a while, I started to understand that I could, but I'd be here for eight hours doing something that should take 30 minutes, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I know exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, I don't necessarily feel bad about a little bit of flex time here once in a while. Because um, the more I think about it, it's like, wow, I'm getting this sound because somebody on the radio got the sound and they did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's such a misconception with the the sounds you hear on the radio being perfect in the studio, but everything's melodyned. Everything's pitch corrected. Everything is quantized beat detective. You know, the reality is if, is you, uh, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but in a modern scenario, I don't necessarily feel bad about correcting things a little bit because all my favorite records do it too. <laughs> That's the thing is the fact that I think our ears have changed. Exactly. So if it if you weren't using those tools and not that you you never have to. No, definitely. You can be true to like what you're chasing artistically. Yeah. But I think that our ears have changed and like maybe our music would sound like disorienting to somebody from the 1960s. 110%. But the thing that we have the thing that we're privileged with as as musicians now is that we have the full reference of you know, in the 60s, you had everything from the 60s and before. Yes. So like recording and modern music and amplified instruments is like, this is a brand new thing. And you're starting to like, people's ears are starting to acclimate. But now it's like everything. We have everything. It's like galaxies of knowledge compared to what it was. Oh, yeah. And so I think that part of it's like using 
uh, like flex editing or something like that, or like pitch correction on a vocal, it's like, well, are you going to beat yourself up because you plug your guitar in so that it can be louder? <laughs> you know, exactly. Because that, that, that was weird at the time, you know, yeah. like that had to be made commonplace, man. There's always, you know, there's always going to be that taboo thing in any kind of recording situation. Like even amp sims were the taboo thing for a while until they got good. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's it. You know, there was old guys who were doing amps and they're like micing up three mics on every cab. And, oh, no, the tones here. And then those same guys are <laughs> like 50 now and don't want to deal with tubes. So they're using Kempers. So and they sound exactly the same. Yeah. So there, there I think there's always going to be that taboo thing where it's frowned upon. Um, but I actually read a crazy article on this. Are you in that MSP Studio Nerds group? No. Dude, like I'm a Facebook thing? That. Yeah, I'm inviting you to that right away. Sweet. It's all the best studio cats. But it's someone shared this article that in the last 15 years, singers, um, just by listening to the radio or listening to tunes, have been so accustomed to hearing Melodyne, like the fast transient response and fast kind of pitch, that people kind of naturally emulate that in their voice now. And like it was like a study, like engineers have been finding it. And I think that's crazy. That's just what you're talking about, where people, well, I guess to back up, if there's not any musicians or uh, any kind of studio nerds listening here, um, Melodyne is just a more exact auto-tune where it scans every note that you play or sing and it'll tell you what's wrong with it and then you can correct it, you know, pitch or timing wise. And so every top 40 song is going to have a Melodyne vocal, mm-hmm. um, except for some Billie Eilish tunes and a few Bruno Mars ones, but singers have gotten so accustomed to hearing that on the radio that people naturally start to sing like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same, it's literally the same thing as growing up in a, you know, like growing up, my parents speak English. I'm developing a sense for hearing the English tone. It's the same thing. Your brain just gets accustomed to um, what you hear. And I, I think that's a crazy fact that people are naturally singing with the faster transient response and their like faster pitch response because of what they're hearing on the radio. Yeah. Well, it, it's almost, I feel like it's almost the same sort of thing as like when, when, um, when click, like a, a click track started, like came onto the scene. Oh yeah. And then all of a sudden you hear music that is like, it's like, well, something's different about this. And you know, maybe subconsciously it sounds like are, a computer. Yeah. Right. It's like, this sounds different and people may not realize at the time that it was because the song was, you know, 90 beats per minute for three full minutes instead of, it's true. you know, going f- instead of a natural drummer hovering up and down. Yep. Right. Right. And even like the best, the best drummers who can like, who can keep time, like nobody's business. It's like, there's going to be some variance cause you're a human, like you're a human. But, yeah. <laughs> and not so, a machine. And so when that comes on the scene and then, and then it's, it gets big and then it becomes commonplace and then you go without it and you're like, oh, this is weird. I know. Like you would never, I I can't, I can't imagine with, um, except for like certain things like soundtracks or, I mean, if you're going to do avant-garde or like live recordings where you specifically want to have no click, it would be so jarring to hear like, uh, you know, like a Billie Eilish song with no click. Yeah. And my dad and I were actually just talking about this. Um, the younger, including me, the younger generation of drummers who are doing pop gigs and, you know, church gigs and stuff like that. Everything's on a click now. Everything's on tracks. Everything's on a click. Everything's on cues. And us younger drummers are so reliant on it. Um, and, you know, guys in my dad's generation, they came up 
pretty solid without a click. And even myself, like it, whenever I sub for my dad, I usually have to have in-ears in with the click. I usually have to bring my own monitoring rig with a, you know, a little tabletop monitor and an iPad for a metronome. But it's, it's a crazy thing now that our ears have gotten so accustomed to it that I feel like I rely on it. Mm-hmm. I feel, um, I almost feel naked without a click now when I'm playing live, which I shouldn't because um, being unreliant or not relying on a click is just as important mm-hmm. as relying on one. Yeah. And I think that, like I was talking with Grady about this um, a couple weeks back, like the, the, um, oh, what's it called? I think it's upper room. It's like the church gig that a lot of, a lot of uh, like Ian Allison and Grady, like Jasper will play it. Charbonneau will do it. Oh, totally. Um, and uh, like, I don't think they run any tracks or click. And so Grady was sort of telling me that, you know, like you don't realize how much, even if you're playing with like the same people that you normally would do a church gig with, um, all of a sudden you take away the fact that that there's backing tracks or a click at all. Um, and like even the sounds have, it's not just our ears, but like even the sounds that we're using as musicians and like using our instruments as voices, um, those have to adapt a little bit because you're so used to like relying on like a dotted eighth oh, note. Oh yeah. That for me, I always fall into that when I'm playing in a scenario where there's no, where there's no click. I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta like, I gotta play differently because I'm not having these buried dotted eighth notes. Oh yeah, that totally. are filling that space. Um, and it's 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 wild to think about that. It's like my thing was for I would say almost a year. I had a year long stint where it was just all pop or country gigs that were on clicks and tracks. And then coming back to a few more, like probably more natural kind of rock gigs, I would do stuff like I would tap for a delay and I'd be, it would be off in two seconds. And I was like, oh yeah, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) You know, I really, I can't hide behind a guitar part with the delay that's going to move with the natural drummer. You know, I need to go back to kind of playing more rock and stuff. And I think that's a, that was a good wake up call for me too. Like, you know what? I should probably stop hiding behind a click. I should probably... And, you know, I still do it in the studio every day. It's like locked onto a click. But it's, um, I did my first gig back a few months ago. And, you know, just playing with my dad for the first time without a click. I was like, we both looked at each other and we were like, holy shit, what is going on here? <laughs> it's so foreign at this point. It, it was, it was honestly jarring. So I think that's a thing I need to work on is don't rely on it. Like, just go without it a few times. Just rock and roll. Right. Man, that's it's so it's so interesting. I didn't even expect to like have a conversation about how like click tracks have changed. Oh yeah, the, the way we hear music. But like the thing too, since we're all in quarantine mode, a lot of us still, we're all those of us who are working and collaborating. Even if it's even if it's a a, a track that's completely relying upon like sonically relying upon people who are playing like literally playing the instrument rather than you know, drawing or like dropping in loops and stuff like that. Um, it still has to be on the same point of reference. It's like how, you know, with orchestral music and classical music, like you're watching a conductor um, because you need a common point of reference to all be. Oh, yeah. To, to all be referencing or drawing, you know, drawing your attention to. And so like everybody has has to have that click track. I know. Just by nature now, because nothing like comparatively there's not like nothing happening live and so you can't do stuff like that remote (laughs) 
Oh yeah. yeah. And you know, even on top of that, I literally had a session two days ago where I had clients come in and my dad and I were basically just doing the full package. You know, my dad was playing drums. I was playing everything else, mixing, sending it off to mastering. But there was a point, you know, we were on a click, but a few of the guitars were, you know, they were still in time, but they were just like milliseconds off and it was driving me crazy. And that's not how it should be. Right. And so I finally caved and I just, I quantized him. But yeah. was, I was like, man, I got to stop doing this. My ears are so accustomed to hearing everything perfect. And it, you know, it really does take emotion out of things. Yeah. Having things, you know, perfect is not the way everything necessarily should be. Right. Sometimes perfect is, is like sucks all the humanity out of it. Oh yeah. You know, it happened today. Um, I've been working with Yam House a bit, doing yeah. a bit of production. And I had a guitar track that I um I did. It was kind of like a classic Minneapolis and it, it was pretty in the pocket. And then as you know, just a habit, I quantized it to an eighth note. And then when I quantized it, all the vibe was gone. Like it wasn't funky anymore. Yeah. I was like, wow, maybe I should Maybe I should stop doing this. Maybe I should actually listen before I do things. Maybe I should. That's that's. If it doesn't thing. need it, don't do it. I I had to I had to like learn from just doing like I I I accidentally did that to a lot of tracks where I would I would just lay down like ten guitar parts and just out of habit immediately quantize all of them without even hearing it. You know, I'd play it and then instantly quantize it instead of like play it, listen to it decide if I need to quantize it, you know? Yeah. And it, it loses vibe. It loses character immediately. Yeah. Cause maybe it does need to be quantized and maybe it's better if it's quantized, but like the fact that I wasn't even, I wasn't even considering that maybe if it felt like a great take, maybe it's just a great take, you know? Oh yeah. It doesn't need to be corrected. Yeah. No kidding. And I think too, if, if everything, um, like you're saying with those guitar tracks, when you felt the need to quantize them, cause they were the one thing that was sort of sticking out. If, I feel like if everything, like if every instrument was maybe deviating by like, you know, 10 milliseconds or something like that, or 50 milliseconds, yeah, maybe it wouldn't feel so weird, you know? Totally. Like if everything has a little bit of looseness to it, um, but if but if everything's like super on the grid and then you've got one thing that's like slightly oh, out, it exaggerates that 50 milliseconds. Um, that's kind of what I was talking about the other day. It was like, I left everything unquantized, but an acoustic guitar track and then just sounded horrible. The whole tune sounded 10 times worse than it did before. And I was like, oh my God. Well, not to say that it sounded bad before, but you know, like timing <laughs> right. wise, it just didn't line up. And I was like, man, this is, I got to figure out a way around this. And a lot of that comes from editing drums too. Like I guess now after doing it all of quarantine, I'm kind of like a, I have kind of like a machine process mm -hmm. where I just edit drums and most of the time I have a bad habit of editing drums when they don't need to be edited mm. quantizing them um, you know doing the whole logic thing or a group and you know it just like I'll do it out of habit sometimes and then when I listen back it's not as good yeah it'll be too straight and it'll lose character and it'll lose everything that I loved about the drum take right yeah and it's yeah that's sometimes it's a really fine line to ride because you you'll have a specific drummer and especially if it's if it's somebody you're like, I, I need this person's voice. Definitely. And then you start and then you start editing that. Oh, yeah. You know, there's there's a point where it starts to not sound like that person's part anymore. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, all the great session drummers in town, all of their groove and feel all live within milliseconds of each other. And if if it's like 
if you edit those milliseconds out, they all sound the same. Mm -hmm. It's like it's not even a question of hiring drummers anymore. It's like right for well hiring drummers for their pocket or feel, not necessarily for tones or anything like that, or just being a good hang. It's like if you're hiring a drummer for their pocket and then you quantize it, it's like why did I do that? Right. It really it sucks out character. So I I definitely need to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. And I I definitely need to start listening to things before I <laughs> get on the machine train of just editing them down. Right. I think it's something we all like we all fall into from time to time. Oh yeah. But yeah. Out of curiosity, do you have anything I, I feel like I always ask this to people, but like, you know, all this talk about, you know, our workflow and and what we do. Is there anything in particular that you're like working on that is like pluggable? Like, is there something that you're doing that you're like, people, people need to check this one out. I know you, I know you mentioned Yam house. Um, yeah, that stuff's still in the works. Um, it'll be out someday though. And I think it'll be cool, but no, <laughs> yeah. nothing kind of certain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just been kind of doing some production for them, uh, a little bit of writing and it's been fun, man. Do you do, um, like TV placements and stuff like that? Yeah, that's, I actually just did one of those with them today. Yeah. Doing a sync tune with them. That's so cool. But yeah, I, I do a lot of TV placements because, you know, those those do pay well. Yeah. Um, I basically, I just had a few tunes on like The Bachelor that I was doing. Really? Um, I started working through this, yeah, this agency and there's basically a pipeline where a pipeline library is basically, you know, you submit tunes to a normal library, but instead of that, basically you submit tunes to them and they just pump it out straight to TV. So your tunes aren't just sitting around waiting for someone to pick them up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I had a tune going top gear and like two going the bachelor. Dude, that's awesome. It's been fun. And I'm still more and more counting. Do you, w- when you do that, do you ever go like check out the episode? <laughs> no, I actually don't. <laughs> I, I have this really weird thing where I like, it's definitely almost like an imposter syndrome thing. Like I, it's really hard to listen to my own tracks sometime. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's, other people say it's good and I guess it's good, but it's like, it's really hard for me to listen to, especially with me singing on them. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, it's, it's brutal. I just can't do it. I can't get comfortable with it. It's hard too for me. Like when, when something's finally released, there's that, like, there's that shitty part of like, I hear all the things that maybe I could have still done before I hit oh, yeah. submit. Man, that's the biggest <laughs> thing. It's like, and I'm like, how much of this are other, like, I'm like, how much, like, I know how much I'm hearing right now. How much is this person hearing or how much is like, whoever's going to hear this, you know, and you psych yourself out. Yeah. I mean, my biggest problem is that I I guess I know it's not true, but I always feel like I half-ass everything. No matter how much work I'll put in, even if it's the most pristine mix, I still feel like I half-assed it. I still feel like I could do more. I still feel like I could have checked it with more references. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's never ending. And I, that's a big thing for me is that I need to learn how to not do that and how to be comfortable and how to not over polish things. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, um, one of the biggest, I guess, eye openers for me recently. And I mean, recent as far as like, like in the past two years was learning that, I don't know if you follow Julia Michaels or listen to her music. Oh yeah, totally. She's like one of my absolute favorite songwriters. Oh, she's so good. And finding out that, um, anxiety like the first track off of her inner monologue record was like the the vocal on that track was the demo vocal like it was the scratch and they you know they just liked it so much that they kept it in um and i think a lot of the other instrument tracks like various things 
um, from that record were also just like, you know, it wasn't this super polished record. But in my mind, no, it was like... It's a beautiful song. Yeah. In, in my mind, that entire record is like immaculate. Like it is pristine and perfect. But then... Dude, like, I love Julie Michaels But then so hearing much. her explain some of that stuff and, and sort of pulling the veil back, you know, and seeing all these imperfections from her perspective and just how, she, like, how frank she is about it. She's like, yeah, this is the, you know, this is the demo take. Like here it is. And she has it like on her phone, like the vocal just by itself. And it's like, holy shit, that is insane. Yeah, and, dude. And like that's that's top 40 shit. Yeah. Like I, I have a buddy in that boy band, Why Don't We? And I, you know, I just saw some Instagram clip of them and it was, they were talking about, you know, they just had a song that was in top 40 and Jonah's vocal that, you know, like stayed in was a vocal that I think they did in like a hotel room, like off of one of those like eyeball, like Chaotica orbit eyeball, like. Oh, like the the foam isolator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, a demo vocal like that that in the hotel room, I think they were planning on re-recording it and just kept, they just kept it. It just sounded good. Like that's, and that's the thing I have to remember too. It's like, if you get it, move on. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. If it sounds good, you're just going to basically kill yourself Mm -hmm. trying to make everything perfect. Yeah. And, and actually too, that like, that goes back to what you were saying about um, like not quantizing everything, you know? Yes. And just totally. and thinking like, oh, that felt good and move on or maybe like at least listen to it before you quantize it. It's like if something is making you have an emotional response, don't be uh, at least for me. I, 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 I do this. I'm so terrible at this, but like I'm like, well, that was a demo, so I have to re-record it. And I'm so quick to just like. Oh yeah, to, to write just because over of society something. standards too. Right, I'm I'm so quick to to replace something that is giving me, me an too, emotional man. response just because it's the demo. Like, what a shitty yeah. reason to like say goodbye to something that's like oh, beautiful. Know. You know, it's I struggle with that too. It's like, oh no, I I guess you really don't have to re-record things. Like I I fall into that process too. It's like. You know, I'll do a demo here with a client and then we'll go to a, maybe if, like a different drum room or something if they want a little bit different flavor. And it's like, wait, even this the demo, this suited the song. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it really, I don't think it can get a better performance than this for the song's vibe. Mm-hmm. Like I can't hear the song any other way now. Yeah. There's a, there's another, just thinking about that Julie Michaels record, I think there's another song on, uh, I think it's Apple, the one with like that starts out with ukulele and like knocking on it, and um, I think it's that song that has at the end of one of the choruses, maybe like the first chorus. Um, I hope it's this song because then I, because then I can like drop the, because then I can drop it in while I'm talking about it. But this is editing, Derek. Just coming here to let myself know that uh, not only did I get this one wrong, I got it super wrong. Uh, so the song actually was an Apple by Julia Michaels from her first. In her monologue EP, it was a song from her second one called Priest. It also wasn't at the end of the first chorus. It was at the end of the second verse. Uh, extra little bit of trivia. The track itself doesn't actually change in tempo here. It's just that the part played was quite ahead of the beat and they decided to just keep it in. And it was a nice little touch. So just coming on here to let myself know that uh, I got that super, super wrong. And uh, yep. Okay. Back to the episode. At the end of one of the parts, it like 
gives not even a full beat. You know, some things will have like a partial bar at the end of something to like, you know, you'll finish off a chorus and then you'll have like a drum break for like two beats and then you go back into a 4-4 thing. This is like an eighth note <laughs> or like, it's like, it feels like an unmeasured time and it just like starts the next section of the song. And every time I'm like, that feels so good, but it's not correct, you know? Oh, yeah. If it was correct, it would not be as good. No. It's like, do you know that Thundercat tune, um, Them Changes? And, like, you would never, like... You would just by like listening in the car, you'd never realize if you're listening to the tune. But if you study the drum beat, it like skip it like skips like a 20 milliseconds every time it loops, and you would never like realize that. But it suits the song so well. Yeah. And it doesn't. You don't realize it until you think about it. It's like, and it it works. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. At the at the end of the day, like the rules are, the rules are there to help. You know, not to hold you back. Yes, exactly. You know, and you can you can use the tool, you can use like these rules to sort of like pick apart a really beautiful thing, and so like and knowing when to like hold off. <laughs> oh yeah, and that was definitely a problem for me coming into the world of recording. It was like I thought I had to do something the way that everybody else was doing, and the more I kind of set templates or like standards or for myself, the more uninspiring and basically not as good things get you know keeping it fresh and trying new things is kind of what i need to do right now totally and I, I usually fall into something like like you were talking about before like society says that i need to have a demo before i actually have a the tune ready or i need to have over 80 tracks on my single or something to make it sound full and mm -hmm. it's like no you can get by if it, if it works, it works. And there's no two ways about it. Yeah. And that, that's actually something that that specifically is something that I actually get really self-conscious about. Cause I'll look at, I'll look at guys like Jacob Collier. Who's, I mean, he's literally like he, 700 he, tracks, right? Like it's, it's so stupid to compare myself to that because he is like one of those people where it's like, there are no other versions of this. Like these are, one of a kind type of people in oh, every yeah. sense. And, uh, but like, I'll, I'll look at, uh, like Ariza, who's another guy I follow on Instagram and, and TikTok, And, and he, I think he actually does some stuff with Julia Michaels or has done some tracks with her. And I'll look at his tracks and it'll be like, you know, at least like 60 or 70 tracks. And then I'll look at some of the stuff that I've released and I'll like open up and like, look at how many tracks. And I'm like, huh, I've got like 20 tracks. Oh yeah. Like, I feel bad now, even for no yeah. reason, for no for reason. No reason. I mean, dude, that was my biggest thing. Um, you know, when I started production, it was like a number, like a track count. Insecurity is a real thing. You know, I would look at even Pro Tools sessions where it'd be like, you know, like 50 buses and 120 tracks. And of course it sounds big, but you know, my tune sounded big too. It, you know, the, the number of, or I guess the amount or quantity of things you have going on in a track really doesn't matter. It's about the emotion and the end result. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, that's it, man. It's. Dang. I mean, like, especially like some Julia Michaels tunes or like some Billie Eilish tunes where it's just a ukulele and a voice. 
like oceanized, the Billie Eilish tune. Yeah, it's a vocal stack, a keyboard, synth bass, and like a drum loop. Mm -hmm. There's like maybe 20 tracks max. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like full is subjective. Like exactly whether a track or a song sounds full is completely fucking subjective. Um, oh yeah, it can be bare bones, and there can be so much breath between the notes, and it could still be full. You know. Yeah, like or you know, like driver's license that just came out. Yeah, the whole yes. intro <laughs> is just piano and vocal, mm -hmm. and a little bit of synth bass. It's like that's all it is. And that's the hook. Yeah. It's like, well, I guess, you know, it's it's subjective if it works. I honestly, like the intro of driver's license, I wouldn't want to hear it like an all out big thing because mm -hmm. that gets the emotion across and it doesn't sound empty. Right. It's perfect for the song. And I think every song probably has a perfect way to do things. I think it's usually end up like less stuff than I end up putting on a track. Totally. Like, I I was just talking about this with the Yam House boys. Like, right, we did a few demos, and my style of production ends up being putting on or, like, piling on way too much shit that actually needs to be in there. Like, four guitar tracks all doing similar things that, like, in a mix, they just get buried. Like, everything just sounds muddy. Or, like, eight different ARPs doing similar things. And it's like, no, we don't need this. Yeah. If, is it adding something to the song that the other things aren't? Nope. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like really being selective and kind of whittling stuff down. And I'm just getting better at that. Like, I think usually when I, when I started, I had a misconception that, you know, a bigger production, like a bigger sounding thing meant more tracks. And that's not what it is. Not even close. Yeah. Like there've been times where I'll hear, I'll hear a bass player just like, especially Ian and, and Rob Morgan, like those two guys, they can kick on an effects pedal. And then just hit one note, and I'm like, I I'll just I'll just sit here and listen to that. <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know, it's so it has so much. Like one note is like it all depends on the tone, the tone and the articulation, and like that can have so much depth and character. Hundred and ten percent. You know that that that's something with twenty tracks or a hundred tracks. You know, could fall short yeah. of. And I think there's that's definitely like a theme in modern production um, before it gets whittled down in the mix phase, but like kind of just adding stuff to add stuff. And I'm, I'm now just kind of getting better at whittle. This doesn't need to be here. The song doesn't need it. This doesn't contribute or improve the song in any way. Mm -hmm. It just, you know, it's just making things muddy. It's making a more important part not shine as much. Definitely. Yeah, There, I think that, I actually hit that same uh, hit that exact same moment when um, I was wrapping up this this track that I've been like streaming on on Instagram, because um, I was like, man, I need I need to add like there's strings at the end, and I think that the strings need to be earlier in the song to tie it to the end, and so I was trying to like force these strings parts throughout the song, and I spent probably like a full hour <clears throat> just like trying to make that work. And at the very end, I was just like, okay, I'm going to listen and I'm going to mute it. <laughs> like I'm going to take, like, I'm just going to listen to it without that part. And I was like, 
I felt like that part that I was trying to force in there was getting in the way of the song. And I like when I muted it, it was just like, oh, I can actually see what the song is now. And I was like, it doesn't need to be that, you know, I, you know, just my my predictions and my estimates or maybe what my logic is telling me from other experiences in music. Um, oh, yeah, totally. It, it it doesn't have to be, you know, there's a lot of at least for me, there's a lot of like shoulds like I could or I should do this. But, you know, it's yeah, all about it's all about what it. the song is asking for. It's all about the end result, man. Yeah, it really is. And it's it's funny that you talk about, you know, like the, some of the best players in town, like Ian and Rob, just like they know how to make one note work. And that's, it's, you know, the same can be used in recording. It's like, you know, one note pad throughout the whole song will fill up things more than you realize. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's definitely a concept that everyone needs to work on. And that mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely need to work on as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's well, less it, is more. It all really comes down to less is more. Right. At the end of the day. Oh, well, and that is one thing that I appreciate about where music is now. Um, like I'm when people are like, man, I don't like music now. I'm like, I think it's great. I think it reflects. I think it reflects something about us as like a human society. You know, we're like even the. This might this might be complete bullshit, but like the whole Marie Kondo thing and the KonMari method of cleaning your house and, you know, saying goodbye to things and living minimalistic, you know, like people were super obsessed with that and like still are. Um, and I think that, I don't know, maybe maybe that's coming out in different ways, too. Like our music is becoming really in some ways basic, you know, yeah. and it can be you can get negative and say, like, well, this music is so simple, you know, it's not interesting, but. There, there's so much there that doesn't have yes, to be exactly extra to be, you know, have depth and be beautiful. 110%. Yeah, I, I could definitely learn a thing from kind of like the Marie Kondo, you know, playbook <laughs> of things. It's like, I don't know. You got a clean studio there, life. man. Oh, man. That's it's clean on camera <laughs> to my left and right. I, I think I have like almost 20 guitars just hanging out over here. Like. <laughs> This where all my messes kids. is like right here where like the camera just oh, yeah. drops off. Dude, you can't even see. I have keys, two pairs of in-ears, headphones, a remote control for the, the heating, air conditioner, like cables running everywhere, like two monitor controllers that aren't even on, an iPad. Like none of it's being used. <laughs> I definitely like I get in such a bad habit of like just starting my day without cleaning anything, not getting the energy right in my space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's super it's super like super hippie sometimes I feel like to to think that way, but honestly cleaning my room it's just like the room is like thank you. This is great. Oh yeah. We will now help well, you by 110%. giving you all of these vibes. Well, you feel better too. <laughs> and it's like I honestly need to start doing the list is more thing in every aspect of the studio cuz like starting in a few days I'll have like something like 20 guitars. I, I just can't do it. It's like they do sound similar. Yeah. I probably only Does Fender just keep sending you guitars? Uh, I do pay a little bit um, for some of them, but sometimes they will just give me a handout if it's like a new thing. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a, I can't really say, but it's a amazing discount. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's great. Um, no, they're beautiful instruments, man. The stuff that, man, they, that white Telecaster that they sent you a while back is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. That that double P ninety one. Dude, they just sent me a gold top Telly Deluxe with two humbuckers, too. I think it's killer. Dude. I'm, Tellys are my absolute favorite. 
Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't know if you know Wyatt Overman. Oh, dude. I literally just called him yesterday <laughs> to bring him some stuff. Yeah. I, uh, he's got my Telecaster right now. Like I, over, over the past year, like I, I've done some, you know, I've done a lot of things with the, the instruments that I actually have. Like I've bought, like I bought a, I bought a fretless bass and sold it. Like that whole thing, like that was a chapter open and closed during the past year. But like totally. I, I got a new bass and then I, I decided like, you know what, I'm going to redo my guitars. And so I bought parts from Fender and from Sir. And I was just like, I'm just going to build a guitar. And then Wyatt has been really, really cool with like helping me just make dream guitars. Dude, Wyatt's so good. He's I love Wyatt. He's just a legend. So dude, he's so sweet too. Yeah. He's so sweet. <laughs> and I'll he's tell him so too, good. like, I'm like, man, he'd be like, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm just so busy right now. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, but like, it, it might be, you know, he'll be so apologetic. I'm like, Hey, can you, can you take this for like a fret dress? And he's like, Oh yeah. He's like, I'm so sorry. Just cause I've got like 20 instruments before yours, but this might take like three days. And I'm like, dude, like, dude. what are you talking about? <laughs> Dude, you're com oh, he's dude, ridiculous. He so hard, but you know he gets all that work because he is a good dude. Yes, yes, and he's fucking kills it at what he does. Oh my god, he's so good. Yeah, he. I whenever I need something really fast and well, Wyatt's literally he's the best. Totally. Yeah, and I usually you know I'm endorsed by you know Ted Vig pickups right down the street. So literally all my studio guitars and basses have Ted's pickups in them. Yeah. So any kind of pickup or huge job I need. Ted and the crew over there are my guys for sure. That's so cool. Big guitars, man. Yeah. Can't plug them enough. Yeah, but I, I definitely like, I'm at the point now where it's like, I kind of always dreamed about this as a kid, but I have a guitar or a bass for every situation. It's like, yeah, the only thing I'm missing now is like, a fret. I don't even think I need a fretless bass ever, but um, yeah, it has a cool vibe. Have a, sit down for coffee with Ian and then he'll change your mind. Dude, but here's the thing though. Ian, guys like Ian and Jim Anton are so good at it. I kind of want to let them do that thing because I'm never going to be as good at it as they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's kind of how like, I felt. I was like, man, in one sense, I was like, oh, well, I should just learn how to do this so that way I can take care of it. But then I did it and I was like watching Ian's videos. I'm like, no, I want to like get somebody who who loves to just spend time on a fretless bass. Yeah. Like if, I, if, I'm, if I'm producing a track and I need a fretless, I'm literally just going to call Ian. Because I know it's gonna be ten. His parts are gonna be ten times more musical than I can make it. So, right. <laughs> exactly. That that's just, that's one of those things where it's it's a far enough stretch away. It's like it's a step just far enough away from a traditional guitar bass to where I'm just thinking the entire time instead of feeling. You know. Oh yeah. So calculating where my hands are, how I'm how I'm articulating where the notes are and stuff. I'm gonna let Ian do that because he's he's so good. At it, he's so musical at it, and I'm. I'm never gonna be at that level on it, so <laughs> I'm just gonna call him whenever I need totally a fretless track, and yeah. that'll be the end of it. Definitely. Well, I uh, I'm pooped. It's been a full day, man. Uh, yeah, no kidding. I'm, me too. I, I'm like so happy that we were able to make this happen, and just like you responded so quick, and this all yeah, came man. together super fast. Yeah, and it's luckily like today was like the only man from basically now until like October. I don't have a single free day. Yeah. It's like my schedule all of a sudden since the vaccine rollout playing any kind of gigging schedule stuff. It's like I'm, I'm booked in more ways than I could have ever imagined, mm -hmm. which is, it's a blessing and a curse. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I, f- I feel like that's what we were all hoping for is like, man, if we can just get this vaccine, we can start getting back to work and get out there, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I knew guys' predictions where it'd be like, well, when it comes back, it's going to come back big, but I didn't realize. But like, I literally have a gig every day this summer. It's like, oh, man, I Damn. need to figure out how to not freak out and yeah. actually take some mental health <laughs> time. Definitely. <laughs> not. Well, I'm not I'm not vaccinated at this point. My family's got the vaccine before before I did somehow. Well, it's because they're my my parents are older. But uh yeah, once I once I get vaccinated and, and everything's like everybody's all more comfortable, I'd love to freaking buy you coffee or lunch and dude. I want to see your studio. Coffee. I'll do I'm anything to see your studio, and dude. We're hanging out. Dude, that's the end of it. I'm buying you coffee and we're hanging out in the studio. Okay. I'll bring a guitar, we'll jam. Dude. Oh yeah. We gotta make a video. Dude, that would be Dude, amazing. I, I gotta get back on the video train, you know. Ever I started making all those Instagram videos for the point of like, you know, I'm not necessarily established yet. I'm only like seventeen. Well, I'm eighteen now, but it's like I was only like seventeen. And I was like, there are all these players who are established. I'm not established. I need to make videos to make a name for myself. And as soon as I did that, I got more work than I was like almost trying to get. And mm-hmm. now I don't even have time to make videos. Right. But <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think it's I've, funny how that works. I've heard a lot of people say that with like, I mean, a few years back before I, I think people were so aware of how social media helped. Um, oh yeah. To the extent that they are now people are like, I know, I know a guy who uh, is like one of my favorite guitar, f- like friends who has just like taught me so much on guitar and he was going to do an EP. I think he's, I think he's been talking about doing an EP for like, five years at this point but it's just like he's always so busy that it's like well i know part of what the ep does is to like get yourself out there and get you more established but it's like if you're working constantly you know even mateus mateus asado said that he was going to do an ep back in like 2015 and it's like (laughs) that never happened you know because he's too busy yeah well he's also like one of the best guitar players in the biz too (laughs) ever you know so good yeah legendary but it's like it's stuff like that where it's especially in this industry it's like you think you're gonna have time to do something and then to prove like a promotion thing and then you do it and then all of a sudden you don't have time (laughs) to do any more things it's like oh man gotta be careful to walk that fine line definitely um i think that about does it man great i super appreciate how long has this been i don't even (laughs) like an hour holy shit i'm so grateful that we we did this definitely man it's you know it's i've been a huge fan of your show and all the all the guys you're interviewing so dude it's been a pleasure dude we gotta actually play a gig together too this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs>